Welcome all to the Broken Laces podcast. I'm excited for you to be joining me today where we take on part two of my hike on the John Muir Trail. If you missed part one, it's just one episode ago, go back and start there. I, I, I talk a little bit about the John Muir Trail route, you know, provide an overview of the, the mileage, the elevation, the remoteness. Give you a little bit of route planning, talking about resupply points, bailout points, etc. We overview how you get a permit. It can vary depending on where you enter. And we talk about a gear shakedown, what, what gear you need to bring, what gear you don't need to bring, as well as how to begin to prep your body to take on the 212-mile trail. As well as sharing some trusted resources. I'm not the albeit uh, expert on the John Muir Trail. I've hiked it once. There's plenty of people online and plenty of people annually who track the trails. So go back, take a listen to that. That should help kind of gear you up, literally, metaphorically, uh, for today's show where I review the 13 days that I spent on the trail back in 2017. Today, I want to cover, amongst many things, you know, some of my favorite campgrounds, some of my favorite stretches of the trail, Share some fun stories with you, maybe highlight a few mistakes that I wish I wouldn't have made, as well as providing a tip for each of the 13 days I was on the trail. I'm excited to share this with you. Love telling this story, so let's hit the music and get to day one. All right, welcome back. As I mentioned in the intro, I'm going to spend the next, you know, 30 minutes or so and talk about each of the days on the trail. And and day one started off with me from the Sunrise Lakes Trailhead, which is a five-mile hike into the JMT. I, I was not able through the lottery and the permitting process to start at Happy Isles, which is the southern terminus, at 4,000 feet. And so I actually started... Uh, from the Sunrise Lakes Trailhead, hiking five miles in, you get to around like mile marker 10 of the JMT. So uh, slightly cheated my way in not having done the first 10, but I did five different types of miles to get there. And immediately I encountered probably one of my most favorite stretches of the trail. And that is kind of at that mile marker uh, where the Sunrise Trailhead intersects the John Muir Trail and you're you're in this plentiful meadow and you can just imagine the type of uh, wildflowers or wildlife that you could see in this meadow because it's it's expansive you're in the Yosemite National Park um, and you have a, a pretty good view um, distance wise and 360 degree wise of, of seeing kind of this little miniature valley um, and that stretched to Cathedral Lakes, um, which you'll you'll hit a couple of lakes. It was buggy. It was the only point. Those first few days were the only really buggy points for me. And you pass Cathedral Pass, which is a beautiful kind of monolith looking granite rock looking like a cathedral, obviously, at about 9,700 feet. I actually got to where I was planning on hiking or, or camping at the Cathedral Lakes by 1.30 p.m., and this is August, so sun goes down pretty late in the day, and I already make my first adjustment. The difficulty in making this adjustment of continuing to hike on versus setting up camp at 1.30 was that Tuolumne Meadows um, was a legitimate place for me to go camp, but being that it was my first night in the backcountry, I can't camp at an established campsite. Um, that's basically next to a road. The whole the whole point of having a backcountry permit is to be camping in the backcountry on the first night. So 
there's not that many restrictions on where you need to to camp uh, when you get a permit on the John Muir Trail, uh, but you can't you can't camp at an established campground. So I had to hike past Tuolumne Meadows, and so by committing to continuing on, I was basically baking in a 20 mile day right out of the gate. But I had a lot of energy, uh, had a good dinner the previous night, uh, felt fresh. So ran into a guy from New Zealand, hiked with him for a while. One of the the many tips that I'll share along the way of just hiking with people. Um, hidden afternoon storm, which will happen in August in the Sierras. This will come into play later on. Um, but kind of out hike the storm drizzle, no big deal. Funny kind of side story. I, I ran, I literally walked by the permitting station that I was at, at that morning at like 8am, uh, again at like 4.30pm. Uh, so I ended up using the bathroom in the same spot. It was just kind of a weird circular path to be like, I was just here, you know, nine hours ago um doesn't feel quite like i'm you know in the backcountry on the trail and that's i mentioned this uh in part one starting off in yosemite you're kind of in and out and uh with the real world and it's it's not necessarily the most remote part but just something that i thought was funny out of the, the get-go then i continued up lyle canyon beautiful stretch um just a lovely part of Yosemite. You're, you're hiking pretty flat along the river, so I was able to knock off miles. I ended up doing around 21 miles, kind of ending the day at mile marker 29 on the trail. And my, my tip one for this day is, you know, soak your feet. You just spent a long day, uh, was near a little small creek, was able to put my feet in, kind of reduce some swelling, if you will, did some stretching before I went to bed, took some ibuprofen, didn't know how I'd feel in the morning, come to find out for the rest of this journey not necessary you kind of so you kind of just settle into the different types of pain that you encounter um i know that sounds bad but it just kind of becomes part of it so not don't be too concerned about that but i think on night one probably smart to soak your feet and and do a little stretching and, and maybe a little ibuprofen to take away any pain from that first day on to day two the, I'll encounter my first pass on this day. I, I crossed Donahue Pass, which is the exit point out of Yosemite National Park, at 11,073 feet. As I mentioned in part one, it's one of the two places I had phone reception. So I quickly kind of checked in with my wife, not knowing kind of where and when I would be able to do that to let her know that I was probably already a day ahead of schedule with, with what I adjusted in day one. Um, I was also applying to a job and and ran into a, a friendly email, kind of welcoming to the next step of the interview. So quickly fired off an email saying, yes, please, um, but I might be um, not receptive uh, here in the in the coming weeks. Encountered my first pink snow. Pink snow is is a, a phenomenon caused by this this green algae that contains a secondary kind of red pigment. And so it's a little disconcerting when you see it, but you're going to run across it at, at elevation um, throughout the, the journey. And so Donahue Pass involves some snow. We'll talk a little bit about some of the snow passes. I mentioned part one of this series. It was a pretty wet snow year, so I knew I was going to encounter snow at the passes. And we'll talk a little bit about that going forward. So encounter the, the pink snow. Um, the only uh, other place beyond the Cathedral Lakes experienced some bugs by Island Pass. And I, th I think one of my mistakes, I, I, I told you earlier on in the podcast that I was going to share with you kind of my three mistakes. And, and my first mistake here was I got mileage hungry. Um, I did 22 on the first day and all of a sudden I was like, let me crank out another 22 and, and officially shave off a day. 
of my 15, 16 day plan down to 14. So I just started crushing miles for no reason, walked by Thousand Island Lake, which is a premier campground spot on the JMT, camp there, stop a couple hours early, camp there. It's a beautiful overview. There's plenty of space. One of really just, I think, probably top five campground camp opportunities. And even if you didn't, if you wanted to keep pushing on, Garnett Lake is really beautiful too. And I pushed right past both of them, namely because I was hiking into the later aspects of the day and some of those camping spots were filling up. So mistake one, pushing miles just to push miles. You're on the JMT, you see an enjoyable site. You're kind of within your window of camping. Grab a campground spot. So yeah, that was... That was one of my favorite areas. I'm going to share about five favorite areas. I just shared one from, from day one. And day two, I already have a, a second favorite area, and that's that Donahue Pass to Garnett Lake section. It's probably the more remote section in those first few days, um, a place that you're really not going to get to unless you put some days into it. And I highly recommend finding it some time to camp in, in that area. My tip for day two is it's kind of the first time I'm using trail intel. And what I mean by trail intel is talking to people you walk by and and get a little bit of perspective on what's ahead of you with regards to river crossings or best campgrounds. Um, Where I did end up camping, I I was uh, camping near somebody who was going northbound. So they were near finished with their journey. And they shared some intel around some of the the southern passes and how the snow was. And it kind of set your, your any uneasiness you had about maybe some of the snow passes you hear things going in that mirror is really nasty and slow or mather was the most dangerous one but being able to get that local intel that's that's most current um it's some of the best intel you're going to get so a, a little tip there day three i um continue on just past garnett lake as i mentioned onto deer creek uh, going through devil's post pile national monument and the resupply point at red's meadow i didn't have a resupply point but they do have a general store there a restaurant uh, and a shower so i was able to do a quick shower on day three had a hamburger for lunch with french fries and potato salad charged some electronics up didn't get a beer, wasn't feeling it. I hiked 10 miles down pretty aggressively, hadn't learned the quit pushing mileage tip yet. And uh, an enjoyable 10 miles down, but it just kind of some river crossings. When you're doing river crossings, you might have to kind of go a quarter mile upstream or downstream to find a log. And that's another reason to talk to people because they might mention, hey, this creek you got to cross. Uh, don't take your shoes off. Just, you know, walk 100 yards south and there's a log that you can cross on. So once I got to uh, Red's Meadow, I had a little bit of a mental breakdown. I'm a normal backpacker for, you know, three nights, two days kind of, and and I'm already pushing uh, ridiculous miles. Um, Maybe not having enjoyed all of it uh, as much as I should have up to that point. And so I checked in with my wife and I knew what she was going to say. She told me to keep going. Um, you've prepped too much for this and the worst thing you can do is just do another day. And if it's, it's really not for you, you can always hike back. So she gave me some of that motivation to take off from Red's Meadow at like two, 3 PM in the afternoon after trading some food with some peeps. Another little tip on day three was at Red's Meadow, had a block of cheese that I was not going to get through that was in my bag, traded it up for some fresh pizza, um, because those folks weren't going to leave that site. And uh, ended up with different food that I wasn't able to get from my bag, if you will. 
So I ended up meeting some folks, um, which is another recommendation um, at Red's Meadow. They hiked a little bit further ahead of me. I ended up hiking and meeting up with them and hiked with them for about a day and a half. And it was great just to have some camaraderie on the trail um, to kind of link up and say, oh, you're planning on camping here? Cool. I was thinking the same. Let's um, either hike together or I'll meet you there. And so that was a, a great opportunity for me. That night, we were camping a beautiful uh, elevation um, around Deer Creek, and the wind, it was so crazy. The wind, you could hear it coming off the pass, and then three seconds later, it hit your tent, and your tent walls like collapsing on you as you're sleeping in it, and that's just one memory I had of that night of you know basically camping with new friends, and then all of us racing to our tents because... We could hear the wind, wind crashing down and the rain start coming. So you kind of had to hunker down, um, maybe finish off some of the food or drink that you had and, and make sure your tent didn't fly away. So by day four, I'm still hiking with uh, this new couple that I'd met. They were from North Carolina. And we went from Deer Creek to just short of Silver Pass. So that was about a 16-mile section um, at my mile marker 81 by the end of the day on the trail. And again, just adjusting expectations. Now I'm hiking with people. If I had 18 miles on my mind, maybe it's only 14 today. Um, And that's just, you know, part of the trade-off of um, enjoying the trail and enjoying the people you're meeting on the trail. And so went through Lake Virginia, Purple Lake, great spots, a little tip, um, an opportunity for some others to get photographs of you if uh, that's important to you. And the other tip that I had for that day is I took a lake shower. So day four, I get my second shower in, which is nice. Um, And then the afternoon storm started rolling in. So I was in doing the lake shower and realized I better get dry and get clothed and get going because the afternoon showers became a thing from about day one to day six. At the end of this day, uh, we ended up getting separated. We ended up getting separated because of the rain and kind of hunkering down. And, and we tried to meet up and tried to find each other. And we actually ran into each other uh, online afterwards and kind of uh, talked about how we missed each other. But I ended up camping just short of Silver Pass. And a reminder, when you're cooking at elevation, things take longer. So if your package says boil for eight minutes, probably going to boil for, a minute for 10 to 12. Um, kind of my first dinner that I ruined because um, I took it out and it was crunchy and I tried to reconstitute it, reboil it, and then it just got dirty and it was not an enjoyable dinner. Remember when you're at elevation and you're going to be at elevation a lot in this trail, cook the food longer. So that's my tip for day four. On to day five. Um, and just a little quick aside before I happen to day five, I'm going to post photos to all of all of the stories I'm kind of telling you and walking you through a nice photo album. I know I'm just dropping names like you know what they are, but hopefully if you're planning the JMT, you can begin to start to reference these and put them on your maps. Um, maybe make a star for any recommendations on campgrounds or favorite places and be able to kind of put word to paper in terms of how you're planning. Um, for those of you not planning to do the JMT, what I want to do is kind of share photos so you can kind of watch and listen at the same time. So on a day five, this is from Silver Pass to Rosemary Meadows. You pass Silver Pass in the morning, about 10,754 feet. If you're going to resupply VVR, as I mentioned on part one, which is uh, Vermilion Valley Resort, I believe, this is the day you do it. It's a boat ride, four mile boat ride. You're going to want to stay there. You want to eat there. You want to rest there. 
Um, after the VVR turnoff, Bear Creek Ridge, one of the more steep sections of the trail, I fortunately had a light drizzle. Some of that afternoon rain come in because it was kind of one to two hours of just quad-busting elevation gain. Somehow just kind of found an inner peace, inner meditation of just cranking miles while going steep. And having that rain cool you off while doing it was great. My tip for this day is what I call making adult decisions. And, and there's a few ones that I made and a few ones that I didn't. And you'll hear me say this a few times uh, going forward. Um, the North Fork Mono Creek is a crossing that I was alerted to beforehand. I had it marked. Um, it's It was not necessarily a deep one, maybe just knee high. Uh, but it was maybe one of the faster crossings. You want to go uh, lateral through the crossing. You kind of want to you want to unbuckle your backpack in case you were to get uh, blown over or, or or the current were to kind of wash you downstream. Um, so you can take your backpack off, um, and you kind of want to lean into the the current and lean into the river. And I I think one of the things I was trying to do is get my my trekking pole to be that third point of contact as I laterally went over. But when the water's really quick, you can't get that, th- like your your trekking pole just keeps getting carried. So it's really hard to kind of stab into the water and get that third point. If you're going to do that, you're going to try to stab a little bit more upstream and, and do it quick and try to get locked in so you can shuffle your feet. I had some, some success, but also kind of non-successes doing that. So you want to maybe try to practice that with slower water and, and try to get that down. Uh, it was a careful lateral traverse. And one that I, I would definitely mark on your map of North Fork Mono Creek. Again, checking in with Elizabeth Wank's resources online to see what river crossings are the most tumultuous, but they're usually the same ones each year. The other tip I had uh, for this day is the afternoon storms came in hot and heavy. Instead of waiting under a tree, pulling the tarp out, and I had a very thin tarp I could have kept separate in a, in a, a bag so I didn't have to dig deep. Um, and put it over your head and just wait it out. That's the decision you got to make. And instead, I tried to find a spot to, to set up the tent so I could hide in the tent during the rain. And everything gets wet. The tent's wet inside. You're wet. The bag's wet. Tarp's wet. The rain flies. Like, it's a bad idea. Um, the better adult decisions, find a really thick tree and sit under it and wait. Obviously, not a tree in the meadow for if in case there's lightning or thunder. But, you know, a good canopy, get under, wait it out. Consequently, with the heavy rainstorm, there was a creek crossing at Upper Bear Creek that I knew was one of the more rigorous, adventurous one. With a rainstorm, it gets faster, thicker, heavier. So I did make a good adult decision and waited it out and camped so that I could cross it in the morning when it's calmer. And so I stopped that day after a 16-mile day at mile marker 97. On to day six... From that point, um, just outside Upper Bear Creek, I went on and got into just inside Keynes Canyon National Park, a 14-mile day ending at mile marker 111. You start by crossing Selden Pass, good pass, ran into another person um, who was crossing Upper Bear Creek and hiked with him for a while all the way over to Muir Trail Ranch, another great opportunity to meet somebody on the trail and hike with them, crossing Selden at 10898. Rain came in that day. I learned my lesson. I waited under a canopy, waited like 20 minutes, didn't get wet, and then continued on. So that tip again, this is the day where I get to Muir Trail Ranch, which is definitely favorite moment uh, of the trip, a favorite day. Um, you're meeting and interacting with other southbound hikers. You get into Muir Trail Ranch. It's about a mile off the trail. So you exit the trail mile. You walk back a mile onto trail. You ring a little bell. 
um, to let the people that, that work there know you have a little certificate um, that you printed out previously. You give it to them. They get your bucket. Again, this is like a Home Depot bucket out of a stone hut, a stone hunt, because there's bears in the area and they're protecting it. There's buckets of food that people did not want. And so you're per- perusing through all this other food. Um, they have garbage and recycling for you. And basically what you're doing is you're taking all this food you prepped, um, whether they're uh, freeze-dried food or a package of gummy bears or a package of beef jerky. The packaging you buy stuff in the grocery store is excessive. Um, or and it ha- has other items you don't need in it, and so you're you're basically repackaging into Ziploc baggies that you've you've had for the first six seven days of the trail, and um, unpacking all this and repacking it to be more small because what I'm about to do is six or about seven to eight days of food worth into my bear can, and that means it's chock full. Also, at this time, you're meeting new friends because um, this process takes a couple hours. Um, you're running to people who are like, why did I pack a bag of popcorn? And so you're all eating popcorn because that's not an efficient way to, or an effective dense food to pack. Um, somebody packed too much beef jerky. So I was happy to eat that. There was, um, kind of these freeze fried desserts that I didn't want. So I was sharing those and you're just having a good time getting good Intel on what is ahead of you. Um, sharing Intel for those folks who are going the other direction and trading food and just like really partaking and 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 getting calories in. Other folks were staying there, so those folks were you know inviting you to stay and and have a drink. Um, others were heading off, and you're hiking with them. And I this was the first time I ended up meet, meeting Matt and Amanda, who I'll mention in a couple of days, who I'll end up hiking with. So I meet them there and, and have an interaction with them. In general, and I, I don't know, I'll have to think about I, I took a video of myself leaving Muir Trail Ranch and the adrenaline spike, probably from the food, but just the excitement of resupplying had me wanting to hike like another 10 miles. And, and it's already 5 p.m. So I end up getting to just inside Keynes Canyon National Park. If you haven't looked at Keynes Canyon on a, on a map, it's pretty hard to get to the backcountry. You got to hike into it, and in this particular section, you're in kind of the northwest part of the park. So it's it's you got to you got to hike eight to ten miles to get there from any road, and so it's a really one of my favorite stretches um, of the park of the trail is entering that Kings Canyon National Park and going to Sapphire Lake, which is where my next day is. So on to day seven. Uh, That stretch uh, ends up being about 14 miles. You go through meadows. You see deer in meadows. You cross Evolution Creek, which is the highest creek crossing of the trip. It's waist high. This is where I first meet James. And so I ended up hiking with James, which I think was welcome for him, welcome for for me for a majority of the rest of the trail, um, starting in a day or two. My tip for this day is... Each of the days following this, you're going to be going over a pass, and these passes had snow, and so on the the north side of all of these passes, the snow, you're climbing up it, and on the on the descent on the south side, there was no snow, and you want to, when hiking in snow, do that in the morning when it's frozen over from the previous night, which allows you to get your footholds in. If you do it in the afternoon, you have a chance of post-holing, which, you know, your snow going up to your knee, and it makes it more difficult. And as you can imagine, at a high elevation with passes, the last thing you want to do is be slipping. 
And so I knew that going in. I knew today was going to be a shorter day on day seven. So I stopped at Sapphire Lake, uh, which is uh, one of my favorite three campgrounds. Beautiful setting. Surrounded by granite, granite rock. Was by myself until some others came in later. And was just like, just super happy with that spot. Um, mistake on this day, though, is I, I learned how to do laundry from some others on the trail. Putting your clothes, socks, underwear in a Ziploc bag with a little camp soap and kind of what you, you massaging, jiggling that the clothes into the soap and then drying, um, with the sun up. I made a mistake of thinking I had too much sun. And I, so I washed all my underwear and socks and they didn't dry out by the time the sun crested over the ridge to set. And so I ended up having wet socks and underwear as I went to bed and I, I tried to sleep with them to warm them up and dry them out. But by the next day I started hiking with wet socks and you can imagine what happens there. So if you're going to do laundry, keep a dry pair of socks and a dry pair of underwear. Because on a day eight from Sapphire Lake to the start of the Golden Staircase, about a 19-mile section, uh, ending at mile marker 144, I was hiking with wet socks. And I crossed over Muir Pass, which is at 11,975 feet, and I developed my first blister. And then a couple miles later, I developed my second blister. And on my th third, you know, third or fourth set of miles, I developed a third blister. And so fortunately, I'm drying my other socks and, and letting them dry out by the sun as I'm hiking. So I'm switching out into drier socks later in the day. But I've already got three blisters. I'm walking through rivers and band-aids are falling off. I'm reapplying, repopping, sterilizing needle, applying neosporin, adding band-aids, doing the thing. And they keep coming off because I'm crossing through snow and crossing through river crossings. Muir Pass is the only one where the snow is on the opposite side, the de descent side. And so that sucked. Day eight was blister day, and I powered through 19 miles somehow, hiking in the pain. Uh, kind of a proud mark on the day, or on the journey. Running into Matt and Amanda, uh, the people I met at Muir Trail Ranch, and describing some of the, the pain I was going through. Matt educated me about Leukotape. Leukotape is a pharmaceutical tape you can order online. Very sticky. Um, these blisters I'd already popped and sterilized. I've added Neosporin to it, and you just put the tape on. And this tape holds, and it prevents that friction from happening. And as you sweat in it, as you put socks on, as you take socks off, as you walk through water, the tape holds. And there is glorious, because by the next day, I'm hiking with three blisters, pretty much pain-free. So tip for day eight, get better blister care. Um, get a Luco tape. And there's no promo there. So by day nine, I'm starting at Golden Staircase, which is one of the steeper sections of the trail. It's 1,400 feet of elevation in two miles, which I did in one hour. Um, pat on the back there. And I'm hiking with Luco tape and just banging miles out. I get to Mather Pass, which was the steepest pass um, that had snow on that northern side. And you really need to focus on getting three points of contact because you are hiking almost diagonal to the to the face you want to get your your you want to kick your toes into the snow people have previously hiked there so you want to use a similar foothold you want to use that trekking pole if you have one to 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 get another contact and you do one at a time three points of contact in kicking in um, and if, if for some reason you're descending, you're putting that heel in instead of toe in first and doing the same on the way down. And so hit Mather Pass at 12,100 feet. I'm running into Matt, Amanda, and James all at the top of the pass. And from here on out, 
here on day nine, we're pretty much hiking the same route because we all have the same mentality of stopping just short of the pass and doing the pass the next morning because from here on out, you're going to do about a pass a day. Uh, So we start hiking together, which is great. Good camaraderie for the next four or five days. Uh, My tip for you is, is you know, it is easier to hike southbound with snow because you're going to be hiking up with the snow rather than down with the snow. And you can imagine in terms of slipping and getting three points of contact, it is more helpful to hike southbound when there are snow on the passes. One of the mistakes that I made is not packing a Garmin inReach. At this point, um, I have only contacted my wife at Donahue Pass. I failed to mention that I, when I was at Muir Trail Ranch uh, Resupply, and I was able to get an internet connection to do some emails and Facebook messaging to let my wife know when I was coming out. From here on out, I was able to use James, my new buddy, new hiking trail partner, um, and his inReach to do some text messages in the next couple of days just to cement that, that end date as I had my wife picking me up at the end of the trail. So a mistake there. Find a better way to communicate if you need to um, have somebody pick you up, unless you have another option um, in terms of how you're getting it off the trail. Do you want to call out on this day? You do go through the South Forks Kings River. Um, it's a dangerous crossing on the trail. Uh, on our year, they gave an alternative crossing, uh, and the National Park Service and uh, the wilderness ranger districts in the area posted where you should, should do an alternate crossing. Um, someone did die that year in terms of getting knocking down and, and submerged. And so um, it's one of those you got, you just have to be prepared for and you know the, which crossings are dangerous and you follow the best advice and intel that's, that's out there on the trail. So on day 10, um, we did camp that previous night at Lake Marjorie. Um, beautiful camp spot. Um, definitely a fan. I, I ended up camping with another retired couple. Um, just because me, Matt, Amanda, and James were hiking together didn't mean our campsites were obvi- always next to each other. And I happened to end up camping with a different couple uh, who was doing like 10 miles a day. And they're um, doing, I think, the Mjomir Trail for the first time. And we had dinner together that night. And then we had breakfast uh, together the morning after. So it was just great to catch up and and meet another set of folks. So that day you go over Pinchot Pass, which is 12,050 feet. Coming off that pass, you get... um, And just just a quick mention, every one of these passes that we're hitting 10 to 12, you're coming back down to like eight most of the time, nine some of the times. And as we get later um, and, and higher in elevation, 10. So I'm saying I go over Pinchot Pass at 12. Well, I'm probably coming all the way down to 8 to then come back up. And when you come back up on this particular instance, you go across a really cool swinging suspension bridge and you encounter one of my favorite areas. I told you I had five favorite areas on this one. Um, And that is the stretch between Dollar Lake onto Arrowhead Lake and to my favorite campground spot on the trail, Ray Lakes, R-A-E Lakes. Get there early plan to get there like three or four so you can set up shop get a good camp spot hike to the center of the lake do some laundry successfully did laundry this time washing some socks and underwear some shirts if you remember from part one i only had two shirts and drying them out in time and doing a lake shower so this is day 10 previously showered on three and four 
This is day 10, getting a lake shower and doing a fresh batch of laundry. So get to Ray Lakes early. It is one of the most beautiful campgrounds I've ever been at. There's nothing else for this day but to sit there and enjoy it. And we had a lot of great sun, and the and the lake was was cold enough to get in and, and like I said, do some laundry. So uh, from day 11, um, let's see, Ray Lakes, that was a 15-mile jaunt that previous day on day 10, uh, ending around mile marker 175. The next day, day 11, Ray Lakes to just short of Forester Pass. Basically, the last campground is, is where the tree line stops. On this day, you pass Glen Pass at 11,926 feet. Coming back down, I think just around 10 or, or around 9, if I recall. This is where Onion Valley is. And I mentioned in part one, Onion Valley is another resupply point. You either, you either hike out 8 miles to the Onion Valley Trailhead and go into town or you have it packed into you by horse. And fortunately for us, me and James uh, got a little ahead of Matt and Amanda, you know, by 10 minutes, and I saw some people. I saw a group of about 15 at the intersection of Onion Valley Trail and the JMT. And I immediately knew a big group like that must have just resupplied. So I said to James... Hey, we gotta stop and and check this out. And and me being nosy, me being hungry, you're generally always hungry on the JMT. Depend, even though you're eating all day, and you're always talking about food. I said, I bet they have extra resupply food, because when you're a guided trip, the guides carry the food for the most part, and if they have excess food. They have to carry it out. There's no garbage cans, and they're responsible wilderness guides. They're going to carry the extra food. So I ran into it. We stopped and plopped on a log and started asking some questions. Hey, what you guys doing? Oh, we're doing a resupply. Any, um, oh, you just ate lunch. Uh, you had a little avocado, I see. You had a little uh, soup from last night. Cool. Oh, some crackers and cheese. None of these things, which are in our bags, by the way. We have trail mix and um, you know, cliff bars and start, start making friendly conversation. And of course the guide says, eat all of this up. And so we're eating soup that they made from the previous night. I'm eating avocados and apples, which I haven't had fresh fruit or, or veggies. Uh, they had peanut butter and jelly. I'm sure there was some bread in there. They had chocolate. Oh, they had Nutella. They definitely had Nutella. Because Matt and Amanda showed up, and then the two college girls, who I haven't mentioned yet, but also kind of hiking at our pace, were two recently graduated college girls who weren't camping necessarily with us. They are always kind of behind or ahead of us, depending on their schedule, but they showed up too. And we all crushed it. And a little fair warning, when you crush that much food pretty quick, you can expect maybe um, some aches in the in the digestive system. I'll leave it at that. So... A good story, uh, one of the favorite times on the trip of us all kind of bonding over and being scavengers, and she ended up calling us all seagulls because we were trying to ask for trail names, and she, she just said we're seagulls. So yeah, we um, that's day 11. Um, if you can arrange to take a break at Onion Valley intersection, maybe you'll run into a resupply, just a little tip there. If for any reason you were trying to do a food cache there, like having somebody hike in food and store it in the bear bins around, the rangers pretty much lock that down. They, they come by and make sure nobody's caching food. So don't expect that you can do that. 
So as we hike up to Forrester on that day, we, we as I mentioned, just camped short of Forrester Pass. It was a 13-mile day ending at about 187, uh, which leads us into day 12 for, for us and hiking over Forrester Pass. Uh, it was a 16-mile day ending us at mile marker 203 of the JMT, crossing over Forrester at 13,160 feet, the first time we're at 13 on this trip. If you recall some of the, the previous passes, we were hitting 12. Those were the first times we hit 12. Uh, for the most part up to this point, you're kind of flirting with 12 and 13 at the passes, but or I should say 11 through 13, but you're really descending, as I mentioned, and spending most of your time in that 10 area. So we're, we're at Forrester at 13. You're leaving Kings Canyon. So I entered Kings Canyon at day 6, and I'm leaving it on day 12. So you can see how much Kings Canyon really takes up the JMT. If I could just say favorite section, all of those days. Um, I call that a few, but it's the most remote that you're going to be, and it's the most inaccessible. Like, you can't just go day hike that section. So, And you're dealing with all these passes It's just in, and lakes. It's just an incredible section. So you're leaving Kings for the first time coming down and it's it's funny after you come down Forrester and look back it's just like this vertical scree wall of rock and you're like how the hell does somebody hike up that but there's a trail and you wind your way down to around 10 and you hike at 10,000 pretty flat for the majority of the day um, and you're in Sequoia National Park which is a sister park of Keynes Canyon you immediately hit a change of scenery it's like a moonscape out there um, you're getting sequoia trees you're getting for like scarred sequoia trees, meaning fires come through and they're, they're pretty fire resistant types of trees. So you're, you're getting that. You're getting bristlecone pine tree kind of ecosystem and just less canopy. And so it's, it's really quite a moonscape up there. You get your first glimpse of Mount Whitney, which it does not have that towering look from afar. Kind of has more of a plateau flat top, if you will. And you end up at Crabtree Meadow, which is my favorite campground probably on the trip, um, got these big lawns, really expansive. For, for you to be at 10,000 feet or maybe it's at 11 at Crabtree and just to have this expansive meadow, especially as I just described to you, coming from this moonscape of an ecosystem. And it's got a pit toilet. The pit toilet, ironically, is uh, open air and it's just kind of waist high. So as you're going to use it, you might just see somebody sitting there. You kind of have to sit like 50 yards away until they get up and leave. Um, but they got a pit toilet, which is a, a, a big plus considering you're, you've been using a shovel and TP um, previous to that. And it's just, it was a sunny day with a, a nice creek rolling through it. There's a ranger hu uh, hut there. So you've got, even though you're not using the building, it's kind of nice to see some infrastructure. You're seeing that it was a previous, um, and they might still use it for uh, like historical snow measurements. So you see all these like signs posted against a tree of where snowfall was or current or normally is so you get some kind of cool science up there as well and this is kind of your last last night before you tackle Whitney because most people either tried to stay at Crabtree or get up to Guitar Lake uh, which is the last kind of body of water pr prior to Mount Whitney um, we had talked to a ranger that day and said, can you camp on top of Mount Whitney? And there must only be like a three to four week span 
where that's possible, where there's no snow or where it's not too cold or the winds are crazy. And he's like, totally, this is a perfect time to do it. So we made it a point on day 13 to do the eight mile hike, got up to the top of Mount Whitney, which is very moonscape because it's just rocks. Um, once you're kind of getting up to the last mile and a half of just switchbacking up rocks, you do got to carry a poop bag with you because uh, from Crabtree Meadows and Mount Whitney, there is no dig and cover. Um, they have kind of a chemo- a bag and, and a chemical the, that you'd spray on it and you pack it out. Uh, there's just too many day hikers and in our case, backpackers visiting that area to support that type of waste. And so they asked for you to carry it out. Fortunately, did not have to use it on, on my accord. Um, once you get up to the top of Mount Whitney... Uh, we set up camp. Most people are up there taking a couple pictures and then hiking down. A little tip. Sunset is a lot better than sunrise up there. Um, there's tons of people who, who camp near Guitar Lake or just short of Mount Whitney and get up at like four in the morning and then hike up for sunrise. Sunrise is really cold. I'll just say that. That's one reason it's not as good. And, and sunset, you get the purples and the oranges that you just don't get in sunrise. Um, we had a 360 degree view. There was previously fires, fires in the valley. So it was a little hazy, but the view we had with the colors in the sky, even with that haze were incredible. And we had it really, I think we, we, there might've been another couple up there, but me and James had it by ourselves. Um, me and James were hiking together mile by mile for majority of the last few days, Matt and Amanda, we normally kind of Started the day or end of the day in the same spot, but we had different paces, so we they, they camped just short, and we saw them in the morning. Uh, but at the top of Mount Winnie, 14,505 feet, it wasn't like my top three campground for in terms of like look, feel, experience. But that's an honorary campground, man. Like not many people, many not many people get there, and then not many people sleep a night there. I mean. Me and James chose to, to tent up together that night just in case it got too cold and we could have a little body warmth in our tent. Uh, no cuddling. But that's just an awesome experience to camp at the top of the highest mountain in the lower 48. So tip there, summit sunset, so much better than sunrise. Um, that is the end of the John Muir Trail. Of course, you got to hike down. Um, so day 14, not an official part of the trail was us hiking down the 10 to 11 miles to mile marker 222 of this of this trip down to Whitney Portal. There's not much to say for that hike. You're so excited for being done that you're racing down and you're seeing people day hike up, which is a pretty damn hard day hike because that's going from 8 to 14.5. Definite elevations, ele- elevation sickness opportunity. Definite people in gear that I would not recommend, Levi's going up or potentially not have enough water. So just really, if you're going to do the day hike, do your research and make sure you're mentally prepped. Maybe try to to sleep near uh, an appropriate elevation prior to. So we're racing down because at the end is is the caf- cafeteria. Um, we're talking, we've been talking about for days what we're going to eat. Most people, it's it's burgers and fries. Burgers and fries were definitely in my top three vote. But there was something you're desiring more salt centric food on the trail. You, you, everyone thinks that you pack like Snickers bars and sweets, and those are good to end the night. They're good little calorie boost during the day. But you're always wanting something just really salty. And for some reason, a BLT came to mind on the way down. 
I was like, if they have a BLT, I think I'm going to go that route. I'm going to get a, a BLT fries and like any other side dish they offer. They had a BLT. And so I order it. And kind of my, my last funny story of the trip, again, when you do long distance hikes, you often get trail names. And we, we haven't got a trail name yet. I actually signed my name on the top of Mount Whitney, just kind of like Riley um, from Lehigh, Utah, originally, um, you know, days on the trail, et cetera. And I ended up getting my trail name at the cafeteria because I asked the guy making the food, how are the tomatoes? You know, they they like fresh red tomatoes. I mean, we're in August, so this is prime tomato season. Like, I kind of want my tomatoes red and juicy. Like, I don't want winter tomatoes where there's white, you know, pinkishness to them. And they're not juicy. I just did 222. I want like a fresh tomato. And so I'm asking, and this guy's like, dude, what? A, he's just like, what are you talking about? Are they like, he was just clueless to my preponderance for a good tomato, I guess. And I kind of asked him again. He's like, well, do you see like a garden out here? Like, what do you, what do you think? I just picked these off the vine. I was like, it's a fair point. It's a very good point. Um, but I'll trust you make a good BLT. So I went with the BLT. Tomatoes ended up being fine. The great red and juicy. But as I sat down with James and others that we had come across who have finished that day, um, met some other folks down there for the first time and sometimes a repeat second time, James said, you know what? You're Red Tomato. That's your trail name. And having red hair and having uh, pale skin and, and, and often being flush in the face and asking about Red Tomatoes, it, it made pretty damn good sense. So... I ended my story on the trail as Red Tomato. I hope you enjoyed the 14-day kind of analysis. I hope for those looking to do the trail that you you know bookmark this episode and, and start to map out some of those spots and, and places that I've notif- or notated on the trail. And for those of you who are, are potentially interested and, and maybe would do something like this or on the lighter side, a couple of just kind of recap key takeaways. Just be willing to adjust. You saw myself willing to adjust in terms of my plans on day one, adjusting plans for mileage, adjusting on campground expectations, adjusting with the weather in terms of rain and, and river crossings, adjusting with kind of the people that I met. And, oh, they wanted to camp at this lake. That wasn't in my plan. But guess what? Hiking with folks and, and having a social experience even when you want a wilderness experience is, is a, is a good opportunity to adjust about the hiking experience. You know, hopefully some of my tips on river crossings, blister care, um, ideal camp elevations, you know, wanting to camp just short of the pass. You know, if you, if you camp at the low part in between passes, that's where the cold weather actually socks in and you get a little bit more moisture. So Although lower elevations tend to be hotter in our mind, and that is the correct trend, if that lower elevation is socked as a valley in between two passes, that's going to be cold. And so thinking about where you camp is an important point. Hiking on snow, hopefully I gave you a little bit of intel on that, intel on favorite campgrounds, and just interacting with others on the trail in terms of getting intel and socialization. My last little bit I wanted to share with you is the coolest thing about this Beyond all the things that I've shared, the stories, the photos, the campsites, the lakes, the remoteness, your ability for 13 days in my case to wake up and really have like three objectives for your day. That is to walk, eat, find camp, eat, and get a good sleep. Like that is the only thing that enters your mind 
And when you do that, it almost defrag. If you if you've ever defragged a computer, it kind of gets rid of all the unnecessary files on your hard drive and cleans it up. You end up kind of defragging your mindset of all the kind of things that are in your life or in your world from your day to day home life or work life that are little contrivances. And so as you're hiking 13 days, enjoy or however many days you need, enjoy that defrag because your mind enters a almost meditative steady state that is only uh, consumed by those three or four things of eating, sleeping, walking. And I welcome you to get to that point because I think that was the most valuable thing I found out of it and leaving the trail and maybe approaching how I think about my home life, my work life, and my relationships outside of the trail in a, in a different light. And so in all, hope you enjoyed my John Muir trail story. If you listen to part two first, I welcome you to take a, a listen back to part one. Hopefully excited you about encountering or doing a longer trail um, whether that's a 40 miler or a 60 miler 200 miler or a thousand miler take a look at the website brokenlacespodcast.com i'm going to be posting a slideshow of photos hopefully kind of tagged on that day one through day 13 so that as you're listening to this or after you've listened to this you can go check out some photos thanks broken laces crew i enjoyed talking to you about the john muir trail and i'm excited to have you listen to my next podcast (laughs) 